Up next on episode 65 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss lessons from a year of building Stack Overflow, the mysteries of COBOL, some why slow website optimizations, and magic numbers from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. We had a request to do sort of a retrospective, I guess, uh, post-mortem, as you, as you would call it. Fine. Okay, and, let's do it. Let's do a retrospective episode of the podcast, Stack Overflow podcast. Well, well I don't want to make a whole episode about that, but I think it's, it's worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Let's make one John, of those episodes like when they have on television sitcoms where it's like the Christmas episode and they haven't actually filmed anything. And so there's a bunch of them sitting around drinking eggnog. Like all the main characters are sitting around the living room right around the Christmas tree drinking eggnog. And they're saying, do you remember that time when? And then the screen gets all... And they switch and they cut and they show you a full five minutes from that other episode. Oh, wow. And then they come back to the people sitting around and you realize, wait a minute, they didn't film an episode for this week, did they? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I no. do. Yes. I totally do. But I don't think many shows do that. I think it's more of like a they used 80s, to do that early 80s bad time. Yeah. sitcom kind of experience. Yeah. Blossom, a very special Blossom tonight on ABC. <laughs> so John Skeet said he sent in a recording, but we can't find it. We looked and I don't know. Yeah. It must have gotten eaten by the email monsters. John, uh, where for did which you send I, it? I totally blame uh, Fogbugs, by the way, since all our mail goes through Fogbugs. So I, this is great. I get to blame Fogbugs for this this failure. That, that's it. Perfect. You're cut off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? It's, it's some kind of email uh, mix-up. Boop. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the new developer, lead developer for Stack Overflow. Yes. Mr. Michael Pryor. Michael Pryor. Uh, so I'm going to just read what the question was. The question never came into to, to Fogbugs. It didn't. Yes. We never saw it for some reason. So it was recorded. We would like to play it, but we cannot. So in, in, in lieu of that, I will read it. And the question is, lessons learned in a year. Has anything happened exactly as expected? Do users behave better, worse, weirder than expected? Any technical lessons learned? What would you have done differently, and what do you expect for the next year? So this is sort of standard retrospective kind of questions, I think. This is. This is almost so standard, I don't even know how to answer it. <laughs> I'm almost at a loss. Uh, yeah. I, and you know me, I'm not a big, uh, you know, what, what's the world going to be like in a year kind of guy. Right. I'm more like, what is next month going to be like that? And I have sort of a hazy picture of what the month after that should look like. I'm not really thinking about you know, a year from now. So I, I, uh, I'm not the best person to ask these questions. Uh, I, I would say the one takeaway, because people do ask me. In fact, I had a meeting the other day with uh, somebody, you know, Joel, and I was explaining to him all the stuff. And at some point you feel like you're, you're explaining things over and over, you know, mm-hmm. you have the story that you're telling and it's the same story and you tell it the same to everybody that you meet. And you kind of wonder if you're just being boring at some level. Or if you just forgot to write that blog post. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and we certainly we do. That's a good point too. Is you could certainly, and not that John Skeet, I'm sure he's seen all our blog entries, but if someone's really interested in the history of Stack Overflow, we do try to document all the significant stuff that happens, yeah. you know, in the podcast, in the blog, um, to a lesser extent on the site itself. Now that we have meta, that can become more formalized. Somebody who's uh, thinking of making a Stack Exchange site emailed me to say, uh, "Do you guys have any lessons learned that you want to share about building <laughs> these kind of community sites?" <laughs> It's that people never read. Ah. That's what I've learned. People don't read. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, what tell learned. you what, sit down and listen uh, to about about fifty two hours of podcasts that we've done. No, sixty four yeah. hours of podcasts that we've done. Well, you know, maybe that does bring up a good issue. Is is how do you distill you know the fact? Basically, it's it's questions that keep getting asked over and over. So, I, I guess that's maybe one of the development models of Stack Overflow. Is I try to optimize the system in such a way that I don't get tons of support email. I don't get tons of questions about why does it work this way? How does it work this way? Mm-hmm. If you get tons of questions like that, it means to me that you're, you're failing. You've built something that people basically don't understand and right. don't get. But they care and, enough at least to ask. Yeah, they you care could also ask, be You could also not be getting questions because they don't even care. Yes. That's nobody cares works. is always a possible outcome. So yeah, no, believe me, I'm glad to get the questions. <laughs> you, and, you get those little websites that you, you know nobody's ever been to. It's like, a, it's like a blog and it's got about three entries and there's an FAQ, 45 pages long. That's right. <laughs> How often do you post here? Well, I haven't decided yet. I think maybe I'll post here anyway. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, boring. that's why I try to avoid interest. That's another reason to avoid introspection is because introspection doesn't really matter until you've done something that's worth it. All right. I'm cutting off this question then. What? No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. No. I, I think it's good to have a summary. It has been a year. I mean, it, it's good to have a little moment and have our little uh, you know, thought process about what we did right and what we did wrong. Let's and get drunk on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so wasted right now. That's, that's the whole topic you. of the show. I love Stuckover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I just snorted. Uh, yeah. So uh, retrospectives can be tough. But one thing I will say in terms of telling the Stack Overflow story to the people that I meet, which is sort of where I was going, uh, I do identify two things that we kind of got wrong uh, early on. And, and those really, if I had to summarize all the things that we got wrong early on, it's, it's about capping things that happen. In other words, making sure that anything in, that happens in your system has an, a cap on the number of times that it can occur. Uh, uh-huh. Because anything, when you come to the web, anything that's unbounded, Somebody's going to exploit. Somebody's like you cannot have unbounded behaviors in your system. That's sort of the difference between a small site and a large site. Small sites can get away with just like you know because nobody cares. Well, I don't even want to say nobody cares, but uh, I think a site has to get to at least Stack Overflow size. You know, like it has to be getting around a million page views per something before yeah. you start to notice that being a problem. Well, I think even if you have five users. One of your users is going to be, no. you know, a joker. No, you don't have to, one out of five people are not jokers. It's much less than that. Well, let me give you a specific example. And this this happens all the time today to the point that we're we're actually considering writing code to fix this, mm-hmm. or at least automatically penalize people that do this because it's so annoying to us. Mm-hmm. So we have view counters on our questions and on our user pages, and you know, programmers being programmers see that there's a way to increment this view. Mm-hmm. And they look at the source and go, oh, I see how you're incrementing this view. I'm going to increment your view one billion times to show you how awesome I am. Uh-huh. You know, and they don't really consider that like, they're not the first person to have this idea, this genius idea of incrementing the view, which during the beta did happen. We hadn't had a chance to write the code to, to put a bounding on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just very simple. It was like, okay, every time you visit the page, it's just incremented, blam. It was like two lines of code, right? 
So that was just ready to be exploited. But that was a year ago. <laughs> so, like, first of all, how stupid do you think we are? I mean, really? Well, like, you think you're really that that's clever? What they're, that's, what they're, that's what they're asking. They're like, I'm wondering. Uh, but then they, they just do it. Like, we'll go in. We have, I have a daily report that shows me all the, the, the sort of weird access patterns to the site. And they show up like a sore thumb in these reports of like, uh. wow, somebody retrieved this one URL 20,000 times. And of course, it doesn't do anything because we've long since just made it a no-op to even retrieve it. But it, but it's still annoying that that people tr- a try it, b suck up some meager portion of our bandwidth and resources by doing this stupid thing that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and three, it's kind of offensive that they would think that this would work. That we're actually this dumb that we haven't figured this out. <laughs> I know that's that's how you feel whenever somebody tries to rip you off. You're like, ah, that's that's just offensive that you're trying to rip me off in that obvious and banal way. Well, right, because there's lots of clever hacks. Like, you know, and I've talked about many of our exploits that people have identified that have been brilliant exploits or, you know, just stupidity on our part that I totally will own. I'll say, yeah, that was dumb. We shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't, this is not in that category. This is not clever at all. No. Um, so yeah, stuff like that does come up and that's the unbounded behavior that I was talking about. You have to bound all the... uh, sort of scores and numbers in your system. All the things that users can do have to be bounded. How yeah. many questions can be asked, how well, many answers yeah. can be Yeah, Without invoked. being too philosophical, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that was a mistake. I mean, it was something we probably didn't know we were going to have to do. But I, I still wouldn't have done that in advance of building the site. Well, I look at it this way. Like, if somebody's going to design a system like Stack Overflow, yeah. and they're really asking, how do I design this? I would say, look, you've got to bound everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. from day one. Just, okay. just put in the boundings. Because we didn't, and... You know, we we kind of knew we had to do some of it, but I didn't realize how pervasive those boundings would be. Like in every aspect of what we do, there's boundings in the system that you have to have. So the system is, is counting, basically. Yeah, you're just making All sure that nothing stuff. happens too much. Because if anything happens too much, it's just bad. It right. just it leads to really, really bad things happening. Uh, you know, both from the reputation system, from a scoring perspective, from a hardware perspective. Um, it's pervasive throughout the system. Have we had really to shut off any countries yet? No, only IPs. Like I, I had the daily report that we came through. And we I haven't just, just blocked an entire nation. No, or hopefully even it won't come to small that. Small nation state. It won't come to that. And then, so that's the one piece of advice: is just really think about bounding your system in as many ways and as many places as possible, even really, really early on. And then the second one is kind of obvious too: is is the whole desire for this meta discussion that I wanted to just whoosh away mm-hmm. and pretend like, okay, you don't need, wave my hand, you don't need to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's a real human need for people that really get into the system and really enjoy it. There's a very, very strong human urge to to talk about this stuff and repressing it is unnatural yeah. and will lead to strange things happening in the system that you don't want that mm-hmm. are arguably worse than having a meta discussion site. So I, I, I agree with the criticism that I should have had this, this meta outlet, this pressure valve release from... Well, we had probably, user voice for, for, for all that time, but it was... Yeah, but that was kind of like sweeping it under the rug to some degree because user voice was not a good discussion-y system. Right. I mean, it, it was good at certain things, but discussion was not one of them. And that, I think, is a big part of what people wanted out of that. They want to be able to say, okay, you should do this. Here's a feature request. Here's a bug. And user voice works serviceably at that, I think. But when it came down to let's talk about this, it was just our system, which is totally not designed for discussion, is still way better for discussion, <laughs> oddly enough, than the right. user voice system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then plus, I think people like our system. That's the whole reason they're there on the side is they like it. So... To have the Metasite be one of our sites is totally logical, much more logical than user voice, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so really, I, I guess those are the two high-level things that I would point to as like the big, big decisions about 
you know, strategic things we should, I wish we had started on earlier mm-hmm. um, that I, I would classify as quote unquote, you know, mistakes. What, what, if you could go back in time and do it over, um, those are really the only things I would change, uh, I think. Um, so. Okay. Yeah. Now, as far as user behavior, I think I always expected users to behave very weirdly. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've always my blog. You got to realize from my blog, I just sort of and you know being online, you just sort of know how there's this, this range of behaviors that you get, um, and it's really about. I, I guess the only thing that we do that's somewhat unique is we view it as you know trying to herd people and say, okay, we're going to try to encourage the behaviors that we think are positive, and discourage sort of in an ambient way without actively hitting people with a stick, the behaviors that we don't like, that we don't think are positive in the system. So I think I knew, and you knew, Joel, having run your uh, Joel on software discussion boards for many, many years, mm-hmm. uh, the types of range of behaviors that you can expect. And then to me, it's, it's just, it, on some level, it is a little bit like a game where you're trying to make it fun to do the things that are good mm-hmm. and unfun and unproductive and boring to do mm-hmm. the things that are negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's how you kind of herd people through the system uh, without having a lot of rules and facts and stuff like that. Just make make the good stuff fun and entertaining and, and like rewarding, and then the bad stuff just kind of falls the wayside. Except for you know that small percentage of users that are. Uh, I think we always we'll... describe this at the beginning is that there's always going to be somebody that gets sick of playing the game that you set out for them. They've gotten bored with the chess game, and they've invented the new throw the pieces on the floor game <laughs> because they're bored with the chess game. Exactly. And that's, we always knew that that, was, that that sort of happens in almost any kind of online community because it, it basically just is sort of a finite amount of time you can spend doing the, official, the officially sanctioned things. Either before the, you run out of them, there's no questions left to answer that you know the answer to, or, uh, or because um, you, know, you just get bored with doing what the, what the, what the site wants you to do. That's right. And that, there's the, also the aspect of the teacher's lounge to the meta site of, mm-hmm. of you're just giving people like, wow, I love, I love being at school. I love teaching people. Because eventually, I think if you use Stack Overflow enough, you become kind of a teacher. You're teaching people about things, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is very rewarding. I mean, that, to, on some level, when I write blog, I'm trying to, you know, it's a two-way street. I'm not saying I'm the teacher, you're the student, but we're both teachers and students at the same time. Um, wow. And it's a great, powerful aspect of the system. But at the same time, you decide, hey, I love this so much. I'm just never going to leave the school. Right. Speaking of your speaking of your blog, uh, yeah, and these people need to get a life. Oh wait, no, sorry. Well, that's not. No, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. I, I think the people who these really people need like, to congratulate themselves. <laughs> no, no, no. They're, other teachers will learn from other teachers, right? On some level, the teachers are learning how to teach more effectively. The students are learning how to learn more effectively. It's very much analogous to having after-school activities at a school or a teacher's lounge. I thought that was a great way to explain it. And another positive, you know, side of having the meta is you've given people a teacher's lounge. So, it uh, it gets no, tra- no traffic whatsoever. No, absolutely nobody goes to Meta. <laughs> it does okay. It, it, it does. Initially, I thought it was going to do really well traffic-wise, but it does one-tenth of what uh, ServerFault does because somebody was actually asking that. And it, it's one-tenth of what ServerFault does. Yeah, a little bit less. Or, or, or to put it another way, it does one-half of 1% of what Stack Overflow does. Yes. No, Stack Overflow <laughs> does 100 times what Meta does yeah. and 10 times what Two, ServerFault 200 does. times. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah, uh, uh, that's about right. One, one half of one percent of your traffic is meta. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your blog, did you find any COBOL programmers? I've, I've also I don't believe any of these people that say that COBOL is like everywhere. Well, yeah, I think they're uh, just reading old. Yeah, some but you've old probably article met a COBOL. Found. You've probably met a. I literally have never met a COBOL programmer. No, I don't think I have. have. You? 
that's just that was the shocking thing to me. It's like okay, yeah. not that I've been all around the world, uh, far from it. No, there are. I mean, it, it's a myth. Cobalt myth. Yeah, it's that, an that was. Myth. I mean, because anytime there's tons of code out there, I mean, there have to be. T- I mean, how many code- legit Cobalt questions do we have on Stack Overflow? I actually looked at that. There's actually some good Cobalt questions on Stack Overflow. <laughs> there's a if, couple. There's I like mean, eighty. Okay, but that's... No, 62, 60. There, there's 62. And yet half sort of them are like, does anybody actually use COBOL? <laughs> so those, like half of those uh, don't really count. Should I learn COBOL? How can we make COBOL oh, programmers real That's programmers? great. We have to feature that one as the, the question How can this I week. learn COBOL? Should I worse. learn COBOL? <laughs> that is just shocking. Why would you want to learn COBOL? That's crazy. Yeah, not uh, necessary. Now, um, but let's take just, just, just for a hypothetical other thing that you've never used. Who else has, what other tags have like 62 things? I'm going to have to oh, go to, gosh. like, I'm going to have to go to like page 202 here or something on the tags page. Yeah, you're going to have to get way deep in the pages. Let's see, let's see what else is around there. Um, it's not so deep. 50, I'm doing, I'm doing a quick binary search here. Page 25, page 20. Okay, here we are. It looks like it's on page 22. Yeah. And uh, what else has small about the talk. same number of... Uh... Small talk at 69. <laughs> that's the, but that's the only thing that, 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 that you can even recognize. Delphi 2007. Huh. Yeah. That's because yeah, there's probably of these some are just, just sort of Delphi. Random. Hey, Fogbugs has 66. What is that? <laughs> there you go. Fogbugs is at least as popular it's as Cobalt. Yeah. And those Fogbugs questions are legit. So, so uh, um I just don't believe it. You know what I think is happening is that, is that in 1967, somebody wrote an article in Scientific American saying the most popular business programming language is COBOL. And the journalists have been quoting that and copying that information ever since then. But I, I just don't believe it. I just don't, I just don't buy it that there's 8 million lines of COBOL code. And, and you know what? It takes 4,000 lines to add two numbers together in COBOL. So I wouldn't oh, be surprised. It was shocking. It was yes. shocking. Because when I wrote that blog entry, I was like, I should probably put some COBOL code in here so people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you can do COBOL.net. I had known that from the earliest days. Because I was just remember, like, they listed all the different languages that you could use in .NET. Of course, nobody does because everybody just uses C Sharp. <laughs> right. But, uh, and they had Fortran. And it was like, COBOL. It's like, wow, COBOL. Cobol running on the common language runtime. That's that's hilarious. Yeah. And then if you trace through <laughs> it's like this this three line thing in C sharp that becomes what, like twelve lines in Cobol of like really dense uppercase text. Right. Uh, it was just appalling. And you can sort of see why no sane programmer would like seek out Cobol. There's a question, there's a totally legit uh question here about Cobol, uh, in which somebody wants to do something that's, you know, like a, a, a word in, 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 in SQL syntax. <laughs> it's not even a statement in SQL. It's like he just wants to check for duplicate records. And it's just like such a, such a trivial thing to do in, 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 in SQL or something. And, and, and in COBOL, you're like, oh, yes, this is all organized to be able to do that. First, you create a file, and then you create another file, and then you sort through sort the files, and then you go through them one at a time, and you, ah. Oh. Well, did you notice there's ways to do math that are like literal, like add years to age? Yes, Multiply that was the original. That was the original. The thing about COBOL, for some reason, at, at, at first, I think in the, there was this design decision that it should be kind of an English language-like thing. Uh, and this would allow the business analysts to be able to write the codes somehow, <laughs> because it would be kind of like English. Mm-hmm. And uh, that turned out to be harder than they thought in 1956. And um, uh, it's, it's still hard. And, and the, last, the last programming language to 
to reproduce that mistake is uh, AppleScript. Um, yes. But anyway, they they uh, um, they then they then came up with this story about how if at least the syntax was English-like, even if the programmers had to write it themselves using this obscure subset of English, at least their managers could understand what it was that they were doing. So COBOL supposedly had the benefit that a manager could understand, you know, add to, to, increment, accumulator, or whatever. Right. And that's or, been debunked so thoroughly now. Yeah. I, I, well, the manager's never going to understand what's going on. But yeah, there were all these plus, things that were like the classic uh, COBOL, COBOL statement was like, you know, multiply price by sales tax, giving you the total, and put this away somewhere <laughs> and print it. Well, uh, the COBOL, COBOL tag is just good for so much hilarity. I mean, it's just every <laughs> other question is just hilarious because COBOL is hilarious. Yeah. You know, it just you can't really take it seriously. It's just, it's, oh, uh, Yeah. So, yeah, if you're ever bored and you want to uh, spend 30 minutes uh, amusing yourself, then definitely browse the COBOL tag on Stack Overflow mm. uh, and marvel at the wonder that is COBOL. <laughs> and where all those 220 billion lines of code are, whatever it is, some ridiculous number that the analysts keep quoting apparently the, over and over. The, the thing that I don't really get is that the... the, 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 um, the uh, uh, oh, you know what happened? The company that used to make COBOL bought Borland. Microfocus was the company that made the COBOL compiler. Mm -hmm. And they finally bought Borland. That's a shame. So Turbo Pascal has been purchased. By the company that makes by COBOL. COBOL. <laughs> that's a sad end. That is a very, very sad ending to that's the Borland. That's a very sad end. That's possibly one of the saddest Legacy. possible endings. I think. Uh, well, you know what it was? Is that Microfocus was this company that grew from being very much like a legacy provider. Like, okay, it's not the coolest thing, but you're stuck in COBOL land, so we'll take care of you. They right. had the only COBOL compiler for PCs, um, which was like practically impossible to get to run, I believe. And they've just been dragging it, kicking and screaming along, adding Windows programming and .NET programming and all that kind of stuff. Even right. it doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, what was it going to say about, about... Well, it's a uh, product, so it must have a market. There, I mean, they, why would Oh, yeah, they, yeah, it must have a big market. I mean, there must be money in this somewhere. Oh, I mean, here's my crazy. theory. You've got a system that was built in 1964, and it's still running. And you're like, oh, I don't want to redo it, because, God, was that hard to build in 1964. And you've tried to rebuild it several times over the centuries. Like, a, a good example of this would be the flight control system that the FAA runs in the United States to, to track aircraft in the sky. And it's running on mainframes, and it's written in COBOL or, you know, 360 assembler, you know, IBM 360 assembler or something like that. And, uh, and it's, it's just tons and tons and tons of code, and it's a big, hairy mess. You don't want to mess with it, and uh, you're relying on it. But it was built in 1964, and it's been running since then. And if you look closely, you'll discover that it was built on, a, in, in 1964, a big computer might have 256K of main memory. Mm-hmm. So how much code could there be in 256K, right? Like how many possible, how long could it possibly take to rewrite that using a modern language with all the advances that we've made since the 60s? If well, you just start point. from fresh, figure out exactly what it's solving, it could not be that complicated because it's got to fit in 256K with that's, the yeah, data. And even then, the, the biggest hard drive was what, like a gig? That was enormous. That would have been like millions uh, I think, and no, billions. No, I think we were talking about five meg hard drives, like those big, gigantic hard drives at the editing room would have five meg of storage in them. Oh, right. The and ones that were like the size of a you, dishwasher. 
you saw those at the computer history museum right they yeah. have a really cool yeah the yeah. giant hard drive it's like look sure. one one megabyte yeah <laughs> I've used, I've used them, you know. There was there was one that uh, Control Data made one, a very famous uh, uh, hard drive, and, and um, uh, in order to keep it absolutely spotless clean, the dust would get in there and cause the heads to crash. So they finally built in a vacuum cleaner. So there's like a little vacuum suction nozzle, like right next to the platters of the hard drive, mm-hmm. and everybody said it was the only thing that Control Data ever made in their in their life that didn't suck. <laughs> nice. The vacuum cleaner get it didn't suck. I totally, I totally got it. Yeah, that's a good one. Not a true story. <laughs> so yeah, COBOL, uh, interesting that. topic, and I mean, because there's a lot of old languages that are actually, I mean, Lisp, right, is still revered, and like Algol. I remember going to the Computer History Museum and seeing the little display of Algol. It's like, wow, that looks like something I could have written today. Yeah. So there, are, there are languages that have stood the test of time, and then there's COBOL. <laughs> Right, which is like crazy I wouldn't down. say it's not fair to say that Lisp is the test of time. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that really respect the Lisp syntax and the power of Lisp. And so, yeah. I mean, it certainly it's to the test of time more than COBOL, right? Yeah. I mean, disagree with that? No, I don't know. I think COBOL is running a lot more companies than Lisp is. Well, I think Lisp is pretty much just point. running ITA software, and that's it. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, there's the big disconnect between sort of what's readable and what's clean and what actually got used. I, yeah. And that's why, if you ask me, like, what I think the current COBOL is, like, COBOL of today, like, what will be COBOL tomorrow, I think it's, I used to think it was Java, but I don't think that anymore. I think Java is actually, like, the new C, basically. Hmm. It's just pervasive and everywhere and very common standard, but it's, it's not bad. It's just, it just is what it is. But I think the new COBOL, honestly, PHP. PHP is the new COBOL. Yeah. Because there are going to be okay. billions I, of I lines it. of code yeah. produced in PHP. It's got kind of a weird syntax that not everybody, including me, likes right. and thinks right. it's kind of insane on some level. Got a couple but mistakes. then it doesn't matter because so many people are using it. So many people are creating stuff with it. Um, and you can't really argue with success, right? I mean, if all these companies are using PHP, PHP and being successful and building cool stuff, I mean, who am I to really judge? There's a certain right? class of languages, though, and this does, COBOL does not have this feeling, but there's a class of languages that tend to attract the people that, um, even, even if there's nothing wrong with the language, the language tends to attract people that are looking for the easiest way to get something done, and those tend to not be the best programmers. I mean, they may be good at other stuff, and, but they, they're, they're forced to do some programming, and so right. that's, that was the problem with Visual Basic for all these years. Yep. That was the um, classic with, uh, Visual Basic argument. Uh, JavaScript and PHP are all in that class where they've attracted programmers who are not professional programmers and don't really care about how clean their code is. They just want to get something done, and that's why they've chosen this language because everybody said, well, it's a, re- a really easy way to get something done. Perl basically killed itself through this, <laughs> through this approach. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and so the code that exists in those languages is of much, much lower quality. Right. Than you would expect from an, from another line. I don't think that was true of COBOL. I think in the case of COBOL, nobody started programming. You know what? The, think about what, what it was to be a programmer in the 60s. You probably went in some very special three-month training course or something that IBM operated in your city, in the big old IBM tower downtown that every city had. Mm-hmm. And you took some extensive course that had all kinds of training and handbooks and stuff like that, and you were basically put through the paces, and you learned how to do things in very, very specific ways. And um, and you did them, and they worked. Maybe you know. Maybe the reason that we never hear from any of these COBOL people. Well, first of all, they're probably all older, and secondly, they're probably all uh, at the point in their career where they're not going to change the way they've done things in their career. And so, for example, they're not used to you know 
they're not used to having the internet available as a tool for learning things, and you know they're just not they're not of that generation that logs onto the net and and reads things that are written on the internet. Oh boy, right. I'm going to get all kinds of nasty email now. <laughs> no, I think it's a it's a valid point. I think it's worth considering because I I think one of the weaknesses of the current programming community is it's all these young programmers and, and I used to be one too so I, I empathize and I think I've talked about this on, on previous podcasts where you feel like okay all that stuff the old guys did is irrelevant it's, it's all about what I'm doing now mm-hmm. you know I am the vibrant new life of this industry and yeah. it, it really is true and I mean, it's there's fair a lot of you know what if you had to do COBOL you would just quit you wouldn't do it yeah and there's a lot of and we've talked about this before on the podcast so we won't belabor it but there's a lot of sort of presuppositions that older generations have made that are no longer true so you know there's there's a lot of truth to the to the the young up and coming young gun programmer they really do drive a lot of the industry but the downside of that is that they f- tend to forget that there's actually lessons in this old stuff that that transcends time the the, the people stuff essentially like what why things work why things don't work often boils down to you know the human factor stuff of like why they designed a certain way doesn't match the way people work and those lessons are timeless and i feel like they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater by not looking at this older stuff and trying to sort of suss out like why you know the history of it and and analyze why it worked it's like learning ancient roman history right Mm -hmm. i mean why is that actually valuable to anyone right (laughs) Uh, it's because people people haven't changed that much in three thousand or how many years it's been yeah you know we're still doing the same stupid human things just with you know atomic powered you know devices now (laughs) so it's worth considering uh these aspects of the computing history are still valid even if like COBOL as a language is kind of crazy there's still lessons there to learn from it yeah not really no (laughs) well you're the one who doesn't want to learn c yeah, and that's uh, even that's even of our generation, so to speak, allegedly. But I think the whole the whole pointer thing, the whole memory allocation. <laughs> I, See, I mean, I, that's just that's not. Cobol was full of it. Was full of unnecessary words. Yeah, that were that were there to. Oh my god! And, and I mean, Cobol. Uh, Cobol is, without knowing much about Cobol, Cobol w- was being built to do business applications, which means fun, a lot of database actually. Like a lot of access to database or run a payroll or that kind of stuff. And it's the stuff you might do much of with SQL today, which is the next generation. Except that you had to do everything manually. You couldn't just say, get me all the, you know, get me all the employees who are full-time employees and, and, and their salaries so that I can pay them. You couldn't do that. You had to say, open this file, and then the record looks like this. Now read a record. Now evaluate if the salary is that. And, and it, it was just ridiculously verbose for a reason that there is just no need to do anymore because that particular problem has been solved, you know, in the 60s as opposed to the 50s. True. We have, uh, you know, there's an enormous number of, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I feel like not, not only are people not going to know, I mean, you're right, not only are programmers going to be able to go through their entire career without ever learning what a pointer is, but there's stuff now that we have to do kind of manually that, that nobody's going to believe because there's going to be sort of the next generation of even faster stuff. So, for example, right now, one thing that people obsess about in the .NET, .NET world, and they have to because, because even Microsoft hasn't figured this out, is, is how do you get data out of your database? And the, the current two contenders are, I believe, um, uh, the, uh, the, what's that one called? Uh, no, not Hibernate. Not in Hibernate. Entity Frameworks. Mm-hmm. There's the new Entity Frameworks, which is supposed to be the new hotness, but it doesn't do all kinds of things. And then there's the old Link to SQL hotness, 
which never really got finished, and neither of them are complete or can do basic stuff. And so you're always forced to try to decide between these two different ways of doing things uh, without good information. Now all the .NET people are getting angry and picking up their pens to write me a letter. <laughs> but yeah. am, I, am well, I wrong the, here? That there's... Well, the, the, the thing you picked is kind of like the Vietnam, though. I mean, because the whole object relational mapping problem is just it's so hard, and Correct. I don't think there is You're an right. answer to it, actually. I and think. and, and, and uh, Well, there might be, but what's, what's happening right now is that there's massive obsession because when you use one of these tools, it sometimes generates bad SQL. And by which I mean, if you sometimes. are not writing your own SQL statements in your source code, there is a very major risk that you may face that the SQL statement that gets generated from you pulls back columns that you don't need or pulls back rows that you don't need and therefore waste time or does something in an inefficient way without using an index that you've carefully created. Or well, I, the way I like to think about this is it's the one place where assembly language, and by assembly language, I mean hand-tuning SQL, still matters because the yeah. performance that you're th – these are huge performance deltas you're talking sure. about. This is exactly. not – this is not, I shortened a loop and saved one millisecond over 100,000 iterations, which, by the way, yeah. it's amazing how easy it is. To f I, I do it all the time. I fall into that trap of, like, I'm going to optimize this. Right, 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 right. And it's some co-path, like, and I profile it, and it's, like, literally I've saved, like, 10 milliseconds so in the entire So it's depth. obvious that, that, that 10 years from now, you and I, I hope we're still not doing this podcast. Hopefully I will have gotten <laughs> mini Joel to take over or something, or maybe one of these interns that are here can take over for a... But yeah. 10 years from now... Uh, the, 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 the kids are going to be coming up and they're not going to know SQL and they're not going to optimize anything and there's going to be all kinds of under the covers and they're going to say, you old people, you used to have to worry about whether you... Now we just bring the whole table in. We don't care how big it is. There is no table on earth big enough that you can't fit it in the L1 cache of a modern CPU. Well, that's, that's a great point because I actually had, had written someone uh, on Twitter about like I had done some – ooh, I used the T word, sorry. Uh, I, I, we were upgrading memory, and I was just marveling at how cheap memory is, you mm -hmm. know, 48 gigs, 64 mm -hmm. gigs. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Eventually, you get to a point where you say, you know what? All that disk stuff it's is a waste of time. Yeah. Like just have everything in memory 24-7, like huge amounts of stuff in sure, memory. Sure, And sure, what you're describing could actually happen. But this is Although sort of the, I, way, this is the way I feel about these kids that don't understand that when they're concatenating those three strings together, they're, 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 go, they're scanning each string three times. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Look at how you did that. And they're like, shut, shut up, old man. Together. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, and, a lot and, of stuff uh, doesn't matter. And, and it's going to be it's going to be the same thing with all that SQL stuff. Uh, it's going to be the same exact thing. There's going to be some right. like horrible inefficiencies going on, and there's going to be some instruction in the CPU that, that that Intel builds for us that does you know a select clause in some way that is monumentally faster than anything you've ever seen before. Right. No, that's a good point. I think we've we've sort of danced around this on previous podcasts, but that's why the young programmers coming up not knowing anything is actually a benefit because they Maybe, don't learn yeah. the obsolete stuff. They don't learn these they don't you know, waste a lot of time prejudices we have that no longer matter. Yeah. They just start with an open mind, the, the beginner's mind, and it works for them. You know, if you're smart and you have a beginner's mind, you're you're not you're, you're going to learn just the stuff that matters. You're going to throw away all the stuff that doesn't. And we don't have that luxury. We've learned all the stuff that no longer matters. Yeah. But sometimes, but sometimes we old folk are able to pull something out of our, <laughs> our crusty out of old our crusty ears old in our head toolbox <laughs> that actually blows away the youngins, and they cannot believe that we've just accomplished something. They're like, that doesn't seem possible. Yeah, well, well I, I count that. all that experience stuff. That's 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 where the people stuff comes in. That that's what I think I've learned over time is more the the people stuff than the computer skills. That's that's the core of what'll help you ten to twenty years out. 
more so than individual technology stuff. Yeah. But this is a good segue into something else I want to talk about, which is okay. profiling, which you mentioned, you know, you may f- optimizing the concatenation of strings. Profiling, is that, is that like when you, if like a little old lady shows up for the flight, you don't really have to search her handbag because, come on, she's a little old lady. <laughs> that kind of profiling? <laughs> Not that kind of profiling. Okay. Uh, performance profiling. So oh. uh, we periodically like to go through our code and uh, revisit uh, performance assumptions and figure out where we're spending our time and that sort of thing. And and one, one thing I've learned, this is the crusty old toolbox, is wherever you think your code is slow, mm-hmm. you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You're not only wrong, you're probably totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you're probably looking at the fastest part of your code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, never, ever assume. Like, I, I, I've been wrong so many times on this that I've just, I've given up. I, I've given up on guessing where our code sucks and is inefficient. And we use uh, a profiler. Now, uh, one of our buddies, uh, Red Gates, has the Ants uh, profiler, mm-hmm. which is actually very, very good. They have an evaluation version that you can download. Uh, and it works really, really well. So what we'll do is we'll just take some popular page, say the question page, uh, start the profiler, load it up, and then just basically refresh the page 50 times so that mm-hmm. we get a bunch of data in the system. And once we do that, uh, the profiler report will show us just the really hot stuff in the code. It leaves out all the noise. So it shows you like the top end of all the functions that are being called that are taking the most time in this mm-hmm. in this code path on the page. And as usual, it's it's never the stuff that you think it is, and, and often it's stuff in little nooks and crannies of the code that no, you had yeah. kind of forgotten about. I was even, I, yeah, it's, it's, some of the things you have to think about, you're, you're probably even just looking at it server side, like where is time being spent on the server? But if you're mm-hmm. actually, or are you looking at it from the perspective of the browser? Uh, no, this would be all server side. Okay, because you'll right. be surprised I mean, at, at how little. Like we were, we were looking at uh, we were looking at um, the the performance benefits of switching fog bugs from um, ASP Classic to ASP.NET, where the server side is much much faster, and uh, it is faster. But it, I think that the, and I don't want to give numbers here because I don't remember what they are. But a surprisingly small amount of of the wall clock time that the user spends waiting for the page is actually on the server. So actually, um, a, a lot of the time is spent waiting for JavaScript to compile on, on the page, even after it's been downloaded, uh, waiting for the JavaScript to, to compile and, and, and do its thing. It's, it is, is often taking a substantial amount of the time that the user is waiting for the page. Or well, how are you actually page. measuring this, though? I mean, um, you're measuring the client. Yeah. But how? I mean, um, well, there's this cool. thing that Yahoo has called YSlow, which is pretty good, and there's a thing. But that, that doesn't uh, measure client. That's all pretty much server performance. Mm, I mean, I guess it. Well, it, it shows you, I guess, the DOM no. render time. Yeah. But exactly. That's based on how. I mean, that's kind of based on what was served on the server. Like, if you're serving up lots of JavaScript that doesn't load until late in the process, that'll delay the, the page load, which is shown on the the YSlow report. Right. Yes. Well, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that a lot of the control that you have over the speed is ultimately set on the server. Now, as you no, get more I'm feedback, saying the opposite. <laughs> I'm saying that, that there's also that, that one of the things that surprised us when we looked is that a surprising amount of it was just based on the browsers being so damn slow. Hmm. And actually, a lot of that stuff fixes itself because there's a new generation of browsers, which might, with much better JavaScript engines and much better. Uh, Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah. absolutely true. There's no question about that. And uh, and so so where I had thought it was slow, which is just kind of grinding grinding away on the on, on the server, uh, was was not actually that big an issue. Now where that does matter, and th- here's the difference between Stack Overflow and Fogbugs, is in Fogbugs you generally have it, except for our Fogbugs on demand, you've probably put Fogbugs on a server that's not very busy, 
if it's only serving frog bugs, it's, it's got plenty of CPU time. Whereas in the case of Stack Overflow, making the server side faster, even if it doesn't affect the end user's wall clock time, can dramatically affect the number of responses you can produce on a given piece of hardware in a given amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. So you kind of so, have to know whether, whether you even care about server speed. Well, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time even parsing what you're saying here. I mean, of course you right, care. No, 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 you may not. Like in the case of Fogbugs, for example, a typical Fogbugs install, somebody will get a server, put Fogbugs on it, and this will be serving 12, there are 12 programmers on their team who mm-hmm. each go there and hit it and get a page. I don't know. Oh, I see. The load is so low. The load so on the low. server is low enough oh, that for all intents yeah, yeah, and purposes, yeah. okay. the CPU is not being used. And that, therefore, okay. your wait time, you, you know, you, once you get the wait time to the point at which you don't notice it, then there's no sense in optimizing it even more. But take that right. same code base and now put it on one server and get 50,000 users banging on it. And uh, all of a sudden, you're using 90% of your CPU. And if you, could, if you could reduce the CPU load a little bit, you might be using only 50% of your CPU and thus have much dramatically lower wait times for everybody. Oh, I, I understand what you're saying now. That is true. Yeah. I mean, in one case, you're optimizing for the, the zero load state, which is you just want to spin up as fast as possible. And that's, yeah. that is kind of the opposite of what we do in Stack Overflow, because you're kind of juggling balls all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're a juggler juggling thousands and thousands of balls. So they're always in flight. Yeah. Right? So the setup time to start this juggling is nothing, because it's always happening. Right. But if the juggler has to go pick up his balls you know, from the container and get them ready, every, you know, every five minutes, you're like, hey, juggle some balls for me. Yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, almost exactly what's happening, right? There's just not enough balls in flight. So, yeah. Uh, I'm with you there. Now, one thing, we have been looking at YSlow and, of course, the Google page speed, which is strongly related. And one thing that we wanted to do for a long time, it's sort of the one remaining uh, low-hanging fruit items in the YSlow report for us, mm-hmm. was that whenever you have static elements on the page, like JavaScript, images, stuff that doesn't really change much at all, if ever, you should really serve that up from maybe even a different server, A, and right. B, from a cookie-less domain where there's like no overhead to serve up the content. Right. So and the other we, server, if you, can, if you can serve it from a different domain name, then your browser's going to open more connections and get it in parallel. That's right. And I think newer browsers have gotten more generous with the number of connections they'll make, the number of simultaneous connections, right. like out of the box. Traditionally, it used to be two... Well, that was like IE6 era. IE6 era, it was like two. It was like yeah. really low, like yeah. absurdly low. And I, I don't know where we are with IE7 and IE8, but I would assume, particularly with IE8 and anything of that vintage, any new browsers, I think it's doing quite a few connections simultaneously. Hmm. Um, I think this was done to, to not saturate like dial-up connections and stuff like that. Right. Um, so that's another benefit to using another domain name. So we had bought this domain name, sstatic.net, uh, to use for this purpose mm-hmm. and just had it sitting around for a while. And this weekend, we finally got past our inertia and decided, let's just get this thing done. And went ahead and rolled out. Uh, all the static content is now served through sstatic.net. And one of the surprising benefits of this is this is like poor man's server farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we really only have one Stack Overflow server. We have not paid the technical price of having two servers yet. We're getting there. But we may have postponed that for another month or more because it's shocking. Uh, just putting all those static content requests cut our request to the server in half mm-hmm. um, because there's constantly people coming in, getting the JavaScript, getting the images, getting all the static stuff. And although that takes almost no CPU time, the, the server that we put that on, the CPU is like almost flatlined on that thing. Is that, uh, is- 
Very, oh. very efficient at serving static content. It's not not a lot of overhead. Yeah, it does but it. I, the serving static content, isn't that like in kernel mode now or something? Isn't that, that like HTTP kernel mode? There HTTP are ways driver? to make it in kernel mode. There's all these com- complex set of rules about you know how much dynamic... Uh, there's certain things you can't do once you're in kernel mode. Right. That, but, but I thought yeah. ser- serving static files was. Uh, it, it can be. Okay. It, it depends how they're being served and how you're configuring it. I don't know if we have it configured that yeah. way, but it doesn't really matter because it's already, it's so fast. It's just it's that's irrelevant. cool. That does take a, a bunch of the load off. Yeah, yeah, it does because you have less sort of concurrent connections, so the server has less to juggle. And we saw a direct benefit to CPU, which surprised us. Even though the CPU didn't go up on the the server that was actually serving these requests, has a shockingly low CPU usage. Uh, we definitely saw a decline in CPU usage on the Stack Overflow server, and we think it's because there's just less connections in flight um, at any given time. So it's it has more yeah. time to focus on the, the connections that take longer. People, not used to, uh, people used to recommend serving jQuery from Google. Well, we do that too now. Do, does that even make any difference, or is that a myth? Well, the reason we did that, okay, so I was against this for a while, not because I, I don't like Google, I love Google, uh, but because we were sort of mushing a bunch of files together to serve as one big lump oh, rather than having 10 different independent requests for all these 10 files. And one of the things we were mushing together was jQuery. jQuery. We were mushing it together with our master JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And I viewed it as, okay, we're going to make another connection to another server or we could serve up just one blob from our own server that's larger and more efficient. But once I looked at our bandwidth reports and stuff over time, uh, I felt like we could do better, use less bandwidth, offload jQuery to Google. Ultimately, I became in favor of it. Mm. So we, we actually do do that now. And one thing we found out was that some places, at some places of employment, they just block every URL. There's basically a white list of good URLs. Mm-hmm. And if it's not in that list, like they won't let anyone at their place of employment retrieve that URL. Mm. <laughs> this was a problem <laughs> because uh, the major technolog- technological uh, hurdle to doing that is, is if that jQuery doesn't come down for any reason, it is really hard to recover from that. Does, wait, so you're telling me that there's somebody that allows Stack Overflow but not Google? Google APIs. Well, this is like Google API. Oh, so they've blocked that, uh, or they only it's have a whitelist of... It's not root Google. It's Google something, something, something. Oh, you know what? If people want to break the internet, then the internet's going to be broken. Yeah. I'm so unsympathetic of like working around people's crazy... Well, it depends. Policies. It depends how many people have this problem. You just and really want just, these people to fail. People, <laughs> people that are working for a company that doesn't let them go to Google or whatever the case may be, or whatever, or get files off of the internet. You just want. You, I don't want to work around it for them. I want their company to fail because their company has moronic policies, and it's necessary for the evolution of good, healthy, strong companies that that particular company fail. <laughs> well, usually Goodbye. they just let the people, that, the powers that be, know that they need this URL and it gets fixed. But I agree with you. If they let the powers that be know that, hey, I need this thing, yeah. and they're jerks about it and they don't do it, then sure, then then they deserve to fail. But um, I, I think there <laughs> needs to be that chain of communication first before you conclude that they need to fail. You have to tell them why you're failing them. Are we gonna? We should. Uh, we should block uh, IE six. <laughs> <laughs> that's because that's a new popular trendy thing. IE6 like is still about 7% of our overall. It's still, I just well, checked. I, I just found a way to save 7% of our CPU time. <laughs> well, using <laughs> IE6 is becoming its own penalty because we have sure. rendering problems in IE6 that we're just not going to fix anymore. I mean, the site will work, but it's going to look a little weird because well, there's... It, it drives me crazy. There are companies out there that actually think that it is better to put their employees on IE6 because it's quote-unquote tested and reliable and stable. 
than IE7 or 8. Yeah. Which have been out, 7 has been out for a couple of years. And, and, and I'm not saying go crazy here and get Firefox. I'm just saying, eh, just, eh. And, and, and I'm not even saying, I, I understand that IE6 was stable and that you tested it with all your in-house applications and you know that it works with all your crazy in-house applications. All I'm saying is that IE6 is a worse browser than IE7. It is less stable. The very thing that you claim that you are requiring people to use IE6 for is the thing that you are not getting by using IE6. Yeah, I don't really understand that. On some level, I, I, I empathize with what you're saying, which is these companies are making decisions so bad yeah. that maybe they don't, they're dinosaurs. They, but hey, there's a lot of dinosaurs out there. I, I don't know. I mean, my, my position on IE6 at the moment is we want the site to work. Yeah. We make no guarantees about it's going to look kind of bad. Yeah, <laughs> the alignment's going to be off, and there's so many crazy little CSS things that are wrong with IE6 now that we're just not going to fix. But we we do sort of semi guarantee you'll be able to use the site at a basic mm-hmm. level. Um, that that's our guarantee. And then yeah, I would love for IE6. I'm sure the whole world would love for IE6 to just poof disappear completely overnight. But I'm not sure how realistic that is. So let me let me get back to let's finish up what we were talking about, which is. It, the, the the serving of static content from a dedicated domain, mm-hmm. once you get to a certain volume as a site, mm-hmm. uh, is substantial. And I definitely recommend it. I, I've been sort of shocked. The, the site appears much more responsive um, because you're sort of parallelizing those requests and they're coming yeah. from a dedicated server. And I think it's easier for the browser to cache it. Well, the uh, theory was if there's you no get, cookies if you get, or anything. Yeah. If you get jQuery from Google, the theory was that all those other websites that are also getting jQuery from Google are increasing the chances of a cache hit. That's right. And we've also, one thing I've started to think about is shared caching. In other words, on static.net, you have super user, you have server fault. But a lot of these files are, in fact, the same. Like the the master JavaScript isn't Mm -hmm. really different on the three sites. Mm -hmm. So we could consolidate those and have, we haven't done that yet. But that's something we could do. Um, And I've just been surprised once we did this uh, how dramatic the difference actually is. I thought it was just a little tweak. And I, I, I'm starting to view it as, like, essential. Once you get to be a site of any significant size, you should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, the other reason that it helps with caching, I didn't get to finish my little explanation, is when you don't serve the request with a cookie, some mm-hmm. proxies will see that you serve the request with a cookie and view it as not safe to cache. But if you're serving it as just an unadorned file oh. with minimal headers, yeah. then it's much safer for the proxy to say, oh, okay, I'm just going to cache this file because... You know, there's nothing user unique about right, this right, file, right. just like HTML or whatever. So, yeah, I strongly recommend it and uh, has been a nice little uh, performance bump for us on a number of different levels. And like I said, poor man's server farm, right? <laughs> yeah. Cause this is another one had, of those things that the kids 10 years from now are not going to even know about <laughs> or how to do. Well, you had talked about serving all the Google indexing requests um, from a different server. Like all, when the Google spider comes to visit, we would send it to another server. Uh-huh. That would be another sort of poor man's optimization or poor man's server farm. Right. Would be to do that. And this, this is analogous to that. And we, I also reduced our cookie size. I took a hard look at all the cookies we were storing. Man. Um, what? Is that a problem? Ah, I'm just impressed that you have time to do all this. Well, I, we like performance. I mean, I, I really mean when I say when I say performance is a feature, I, I want the site to be you know, as fast as we can make it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm kind of a little disappointed that we're probably never in any, not, I guess never is a long time, but it's unlikely we're going to be able to get to a content distribution network. It kind of bothers me a little that people in Europe have to go all the way to Oregon <laughs> 
to get to our data. Well, you, you can know? put the static sites on a content distribution network. I could put the static stuff on a CDN. Yeah. I mean, I guess that would be the next step beyond having our own little mini CDN. Yeah, you know what? If, if, at some point, it's not... That's a waste of time. Well, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. But yeah. it, it bugs me a little. I feel bad because the people coming from Europe, the people coming from Asia, we have a huge international community, right? I mean, the U.S. is number one for sure, just in terms of traffic and stuff. Right. Um, but I actually posted this on the blog. I think uh, UK, Australia, um, Europe, um, these are big contingents of our audience, and they have to come a long, long way to get to our content. And there's nothing I can do about the speed of light, right? I can't make that faster. <laughs> yeah. And the speed of the tele telecommunications network. All I can really do is optimize our servers to serve it up as fast as possible, but um, I, I guess I would like it if we had some other server hub somewhere eventually. Maybe once we get to this Wikipedia scale that <laughs> in theory we would eventually get to, then maybe it'll make sense then. But short of that, I think we're at the end of the road in terms of the low-hanging fruit of why slow recommendations. The, the, the uh, static serving was, was kind of the last major one we hadn't gotten to. Uh oh Not that we can't get faster. <laughs> you can always buy faster hardware. You know, I'm a big fan of that. You know, people always criticize me about that, that blog post I wrote about, you know, just throw hardware at the problem. Oh. But I wasn't what? saying just throw hardware at the problem. I was saying start. They, I don't know why people do this. They, like, they read like 10% of the post oh. and they... They complain. <laughs> Start with fast hardware, then do the other stuff. Because fast hardware is so cheap. It's just it's crazy from a financial standpoint not to get the fast hardware. Right. Um, and then do the optimization. I'm saying do both. That's really what that blog post was saying was like do both. Do both of these things. But start with the hardware because <laughs> it's just it's a no-brainer. Because optimization takes brain power. Like we have to think about what we're doing. We have to measure it. I have to get out the profiler, right? Yeah, we have Whereas, finite brains. Right, writing a check to <laughs> Dell or whatever. Which I, mean, I think God, that, all of our that, readers will agree with. Yes, we have, that takes no brain power whatsoever. Writing a check to somebody is like the ultimate no-brainer. So, unless the check is for a billion, trillion dollars or whatever, but hardware is cheap and getting cheaper all the time. So that, that was my point. We, we continue to do both. We optimize the software and the hardware. Yes. And now we're, yeah, so hopefully the site is nice and fast now for people, or faster I, I didn't notice. It's always been very fast for me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's good. Well, you're coming from New York. You still got to go cross country, so that's good. Yeah. No, cross country is not so not such a big problem. Yeah, it's across uh, the ocean. Europe is not that bad either. The, 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 when people have a problem, it's not. It's not. Uh, well, Australia always has a problem because they don't have enough bandwidth to the whole country, to the whole continent down there. And the pipes. Uh, yeah, the pipes and and everybody's paying through the nose for bandwidth down there. So, hey, before we go, I know it's getting close to the end of the podcast, but I do want to cover this question because this is such an interesting question. Uh -huh. We haven't done a Stack Overflow question in a while. Okay. This is question number 113-3581. Uh, 113-3581. And the title is... is oh, now, now Stack Overflow is really slow. <laughs> and I mean really slow. <laughs> it shouldn't be. Jeff, go reboot the server. What's... It's fast. I'll tell you what, you're going to have to read it. I don't know. I, my, my, no, it's not coming up. It's weird. Yeah, it does. Oh, interesting. Is it not coming up for you? It came up for you. Well, it was a, l a little sluggish there to load the homepage, but now it's fine. Maybe I'm just like off the internet or something. It was some temporary thing. Anyway, so this question is 
some giant number, a magic number or sheer chance. I'm not going to read the number because it's enormous. It would be ridiculous. So this post has 156 upvotes, 72 favorites. Yeah. It has a comment with 82 upvotes. The top answer has 563 upvotes. Is that the thing about the person got charged on their phone bill? Yes. Some it's large the amount. one about the guy who got charged some yeah. giant num- amount of money to buy a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, that one was on Reddit and Dig and all that kind of stuff. That's why I got all those votes. Yes, but it is interesting because the guy who got 563 upvotes was able to figure out, and I, I suck at this stuff. I suck at these puzzly kind of things. Right, right, he right. was able to sort of fi- reverse engineer where this number came from. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil the surprise. I want to make you go to the question read it because I, I really think the, the guffa. It, it the was pretty, who- pretty awesome. You're trying to figure out why does a random line on your phone, phone bill, was it phone bill? That was a credit card bill. Credit card bill show up saying, you know, 98,176,343,722,248. Like, how do you get this particular number, this crazy number to show up on a credit card bill? Exactly. As opposed and he to was able to come number. up with this totally plausible explanation that, yeah. that seems accurate, mm-hmm. just based on this completely random looking number. And I think that's what people were reacting to was that it was really a little detective work. Yeah, it was a sort of cool, cool piece of detective work. And, and it sort of reminds me of, uh, um, well, there are a lot of, it, it, it's similar to some other bugs that have, that have happened that have had the, sort of the same form. But do you remember where somebody found six numbers in Excel that if you multiplied them, you got something obviously wrong? Like very, very specific numbers, very specific floating point numbers in Excel. And I think you needed Excel 2007. Uh, I think that was the version. They just found a couple of very, very obscure floating point numbers that when you multiplied them, you got an obviously wrong answer. Do you remember this? Right. Vaguely. Vaguely. It was just one of these little floating point bugs that you hardly ever notice. And, and, and in the entire universe of all possible numbers that Excel can represent in floating point, this particular bug affected six of them. Oh, right. I remember that. Or eight. I think I might have blogged about it. Yes, and, um, that was a great entry. I a lot of people that. tried to reverse engineer it, but nobody really did. Nobody was able to really figure out. And even after Microsoft told people, well, there was some kind of a bug in the such and such, until, until, until somebody actually like, listed the assembly, uh, no, nobody really understood how that, how that bug came about. Yeah. Yeah, but these number bugs are kind of fun. I'm just not, as we've previously well established, I'm not by any means a math wizard. Right. Um, and I also dislike puzzles, so I'm disinclined to use. But I have <laughs> tremendous respect for people that can... They can figure out these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's fun. It's a very geeky, fun thing. So this is an example of... And you know, one thing that's come up, too, on Stack Overflow is there's this disconnect. People don't want some of the fun questions. Like, this would be kind of a fun question, I guess. You know, where did this magic number come from, and, and why does it exist? Yeah. Um, is that really about programming, right? Is that really, you know, what do I, how do I write this this C sharp code to do this particular thing? Not really. Pretty much any time one of our questions gets on the homepage of Reddit, you have to be <laughs> a little suspicious. I think we might have to take away like a hundred points for that. <laughs> but I think some of these fun questions, as long as they're programming related, and I think this one clearly is. Um, are, I think are okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to be a programmer to understand the nuances of like hexadecimal and overwriting things with spaces and. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's strongly related, so yeah. you know I, I don't really have a problem with it. And I think some of the fun stuff is is should be allowed. It's interesting, right? I'm all for it. Yeah, I got a credit card from a bank once that had an expiration date uh, set at 49. Wow, and it just didn't work anywhere, and <laughs> I, I, it was like a little credit union, and I think they had decided that 
that the maximum. And it turns out, I guess they had gone back and read the spec, and they were allowed to set the expiration date of their credit card as far as far as they wanted, up to, and there was some kind of algorithm for how it decided. This was in the 90s, and there was some algorithm as to how it decided whether it was this century or next century. That, wait, wait, you had a credit card with an expiration of 2049? Yeah. Well, it just wow. had, it just had the two digits four nine. <laughs> well, that's insane, though. I know, Who I know. And, but here's the thing, and it didn't. Well, because I guess they, they 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 this little credit union had decided that their credit card that they issued, debit card or whatever it was that they issued, they just didn't really want it to expire. Right? That was their decision, and um, and it was technically legit, I think, but it didn't work anywhere. Okay, so they've decided in their effort to make a non-expiring card, they made a card that doesn't work anywhere. Yes, that's great. That's not at all what they had in mind. No. <laughs> no, clearly not. But I just thought it was sort of funny because like, they had said, what's the, what's the latest we can make the exp- ex- expiration date? And then you know, they went and they read the spec and they discovered that numbers below 50 would be deemed to be in the 21st century. You know, that's what some spec said, so this should have been legit. And yeah, I don't know who everybody who, like, was doing two digit math. This craziness, like what? What? Yeah, it's, a little credit, it's a little credit cards. Uh, sorry, these little credit unions. It's, it's you know four and a half people that make a little bank. You know, credit unions right. are very easy to start up relative yeah. to the full fledged banks. I guess. And, so, did you have anything yeah. else you want to discuss before we? Um, no, no, I'm not really sure whether I'm going to be, I don't think I'm going to have that much bandwidth next week, next week, cause I'm going to be away in the France That's and not true. just any France, but like the, the, the rural France. Wow. And they claim, well, did you want to, did you want to just not do the podcast? They, well, they claim there's high speed internet, but let's just not count on it. Okay. We'll so, see. So we may be skipping the podcast uh, next week. Uh, okay. Oh, and the week after that, I'm going to be in Barcelona. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be on email, so I'll, I'll let you know, but we may, Augusts are, are, are difficult. Right. Hey, when we're doing that whole, I just did all my travel reservations for the Stack Overflow Dev Days. Oh, my God, it's insane. I'm only away from home for three weeks. Completely crazy. You'll be all right. But, um, but we should still be able to do a podcast during that. Or maybe what we'll do is we'll record some of the sessions or something and throw them up, throw them out there and call that a podcast. A very special, okay. tonight, a very cool. special Stack Overflow podcast. That'd be cool if we could do that. Yeah. So I'll do the I'll do the trail out since I always make you do it. I actually have it up on my screen. So if you'd like to submit a question to be answered in our next episode, record an audio file, ninety seconds or less, and mail it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Oh wait, wait. You can also record a question using your telephone. we have a dedicated phone number you can leave audio questions at 646-826-3879 and please call and give us questions since Joel is very, very picky and often has no questions for us to read. <laughs> so give him some fodder. We also have a transcript wiki for people who uh, can't listen to the podcast for whatever reason, can find the crazy things that we're saying and make fun of them. So if there's something we said that you want to make fun of, make sure that it's uh, in the transcript so it can be sufficiently poked fun at. And that will be linked from the show notes. See you when we see you. Yeah. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. 
So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.